Be careful what you wish for. You ever hear that? Be careful what you ask for. Um, we've been reading stories, watching movies with that as a, as a theme, a major trope our whole lives. We've heard a, a hundred jokes about the person who was granted three wishes and he should have been more careful what he wished for. Um, it's a Wonderful Life. You know that movie? It's the story about a man named George Bailey who wished what? He wished he had never been born, right? Um, the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, the picture of Dorian Gray. King Midas wished everything he touched would turn to gold. Um, big. Remember the Tom Hanks movie, Big? He wished he could be big. Freaky Friday, if you remember that one. The kid wished she could be old. The mom wished she could be young. And it never works out the way you'd like. And be honest here, a little introspection. How many of you wished years ago that the Huskers would fire Frank Solich? Seriously. Be careful what you wish for. Now those are just some of the common example stuff that I thought of. This that theme has shown up for thousands and thousands of years. Probably because as human beings we are so prone to wish for, to long for, to pursue stuff that ultimately is not going to be good for us. Well, this morning we're going to read a 3,000 year old example of be careful what you ask for happening in real life as we go back to the story we started last week where Israel asks God to give them a king like all of the other nations have. And God almost literally is going to say, be careful what you ask for. Let's read our passage, 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to read from verse 4 through the end of, of the chapter. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the other nations. But that thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they're doing the same to you also. Verse 9. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the, the procedure or the ways of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. Verse 11, and he said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen. They will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself from among your sons commanders of thousands and of fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters 
to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Verse 14. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to their servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He'll take a tenth of your flock and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the other nations, that our king may judge us, and our king may go out before us, and our king may fight our battles. After Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to their voice and appoint them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. There's our passage. One thing I've heard many times, and I'm sure I believe this or thought this way for a long time, is that Israel's biggest problem in this passage was that Israel wanted to have a king. And that's not true. That wasn't the problem. In fact, the book of Genesis made clear, almost from the very beginning, This is God speaking to Abraham. I have made you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. God promised Abraham there would be kings in his promised line. And in Deuteronomy, so 400 years prior to to this story, God sort of, he knows the future, he knows what's coming. He said through Moses, Someday this people's going to want a king. Here's the kind of king Israel should have. So apparently having a king, Israel we know was always going to have at least one king. But apparently that was okay with God as long as they got the right king. So what I want to show you this morning is that passage in Deuteronomy where so God said, when you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you take it over and you live in it, and then you say as a people, I will select a king like all the nations surrounding me, God said, you must select, and he's very emphatic here, without fail, a king whom the Lord your God chooses. You've got to get the right kind of king. And then... Following this, it'll be on the screen in a second, God is going to lay out the qualifications of the right kind of king. Here's what God says. Here's the right kind of king, the kind of king Israel should pursue, a godly king, a king who pursues God's heart. First, he must not accumulate horses for himself. That sounds strange. Sounds like a greed thing. It's not. It's a military thing. This is God saying the king of Israel shouldn't amass a huge army, which is what horses were for, for kings. This was like tanks back in the day because Israel didn't need an army to ensure its security. They had God. God would fight their battles. Then God said he must not marry many wives lest his affections 
turn aside. That sounds like merely a morality issue to us. Not that there's not a morality issue there, but it's more than that. This is a, an international relations. This is a, a foreign policy decision by God. Because in the ancient world, the way, the way treaties were, were sort of ratified between nations was like a daughter swap. One king would give his daughter to become one of the wives of that king. That king would give one of his daughters to become a wife of this king. And then, when there were children there, now if I'm one of those kings and we've made that, agree- that agreement, I have a vested personal interest, not just in the success of that nation, but in that king's administration. Because i got family in the royal line now. Um, and I know what happens when kings get deposed to their sons and daughters, and it's not good. So that's how, this, this by the way, is not even that ancient of a thing. Uh, modern Europe, when, when it was still ruled by kings and queens, it was as inbred as, as it gets almost. This is why. So, again, Israel's not supposed to depend on alliances with other countries for its security. We've got God. So we're not doing the wife, the the daughter swap thing. He's not supposed to accumulate much silver and gold. There's the greed thing. Uh, You're not supposed to use, a a king of Israel is not supposed to use that position to enrich himself. Next, uh, the right king, a king after God's heart, is supposed to write out, personally make a copy of the law of God. There's a good way to learn the scriptures. Write it out, keep that with him, read from it constantly so that he may learn to revere it, love God's law. He might constantly observe it himself and then he might rule, carry them out, make sure the nation of Israel is run not by the king as the law of the land, but by God's law as the law of the land. The king was supposed to be under God, under the law. And God said, and if he does that, then he will not exalt himself above his fellow citizens. God's kind of king, though he wasn't merely a citizen, he was the king, he was one of them as much as he was to be over them. Now, if that was the kind of king Israel had, like, what kind of king would that be? That'd be a pretty good king, right? It sounds like someone we've met in this book. You know who it reminds me of? Samuel. They've already got one. They don't call him king, but go through the list. Samuel is the recognized civil leader of the entire nation. First one they've had since Moses. He's exactly like that. But Israel doesn't want him. And it's not just because he's old. Israel wants a king that's like what? Like everybody else's king. They don't want that kind of king. They want a king like everyone else's king. They don't want, this is part of the plight of God's people. Israel and God's people, the church, forever. We have a hard time being okay, being different from the rest of the world. So, 
because God loves his people. He tells Samuel, I want you to go give them a very stern warning. We're back in our passage in 1 Samuel now. Give them a very stern and emphatic warning about what life is going to look like, what they're actually asking for. This is the be careful what you ask for portion of the passage. Seriously warn them. Make them aware of how a king like the rest of the nations is going to rule. And I won't, this is, won't be on the screen again, but there's that list where God says, if you get a king like the rest of the world, he is going to be a taker. He's going to take your sons to be a part of his army, to make all the stuff he needs for his military. He's going to take your daughters to be servants. He's going to take your fields, your produce, your servants. He's going to take and take and take. Um, then God says, and one day, verse 18, one day you're going to wake up and have this kind of king and go, now we wish we didn't have this king anymore. And God says, you're going to ask me to deliver you from this king. And I'm going to say, you should have been careful what you asked for. I only gave you what you wanted. So that's where this whole thing is headed. And the people, they've asked for a king. They listen to all those promises from God's prophet Samuel whose words never failed because they're always what God says. They listen to all that stuff about all that, the stuff the king's going to take and they go, hmm, that sounds good. We'll have that. Right? We'll take it. Deal. They refuse to heed the warning and just as emphatically they tell God, no, there will be a king over us. We will be like all the other nations. Truer words were never spoken, by the way. Israel becomes just like all the other nations. Still are. Our king will judge us. Our king will lead us. Our king will fight our battles. What, what seems so nuts to me is what this generation has just seen. See what they say right here? No, no, no. We're going to get a king to fight our battles. It's been a few weeks for us, but it was just in chapter 7. Where do you remember what happened? The people had been dominated by the Philistines for 20 years. They couldn't, have, they couldn't have an army, couldn't have any of that stuff. They finally turned their hearts back over to God. Samuel had that big uh, ceremony of repentance. You remember that? And here came the Philistine army, ready for battle. And, and the people got really scared, and they cried out to God, please, please help us. We're so helpless. You're our only hope. And God goes, sweet. That's all I was ever waiting for. Israel has this promise. If you give Israel, God, your hearts, you don't have any worries from other nations. And that day, God debilitated the Philistine army and let this weak people that didn't even have an army go defeat the Philistines. Miraculously, they don't need 
foreign allies, they can have the God of the universe as their ally and protector. That's a pretty good deal, right? But is it scary to just trust God to come through? Is it ever scary to just do the right thing but think, God, if you don't act in a big way, this could really hurt? Is that a scary place to be? It really can be. So that's what's going on here. This generation is like, I was there that day. And yes, God came through that day. And we put up a big stone that said, well, God helped us this time. Remember, that's what it said, basically. I don't want to go back in that place. where we have no army and that other nation that's got a big one is on the door and we just have to sit there and see what God will do. We're not doing that again. They got a king who raises an army. We want a king who raises an army. They've got an army we can see. We want an army we can see. We want something we can like sink our teeth into and put our eyes on. That's what this is. We want a king to judge us and lead us and fight our battles. And that's why God says what their problem is, is they're rejecting me, Samuel. They're rejecting God. They don't trust that he will do what he says they will do. But it's also, this is why Israel doesn't need a king that will tax the soup out of them. What a great opportunity they have. Think about everything that frustrates you about our government. And we don't have time to go through the examples. Israel's the one country in the history of the world who didn't need any of it. Militaries have never been free. They've never been cheap. And basically, Every nation on earth either needs their own powerful military or another nation to be their friend who has their own powerful military, right? Israel didn't need that. They had God. They reject him. And so at the end of the chapter, God says, do as they say. Give them a king. That's the story, and it is a and it's a terrifying story to me. This to me, reading this story is like watching a horror movie. I don't recommend it, but if you've ever seen one, you know how you see this person. They're walking down this dark hallway, or they're going down into this basement, and you know that the scary monster guy with the chainsaw—that's where he's at, right? And what do you feel like screaming at the, at the screen? Like, don't go down there. What are you doing? This is not going to go well. That's the story, isn't it? Isn't it? Hey, give us a king. God says, I don't think you want to go there. And he tells him everything. Oh, no, please, we want to give us a king. I want to just, Israel, don't go in there. We can see the train wreck that's coming. 
But that's not even the scariest part. Because to me, maybe the scariest part of this passage is it's another place in the Bible that reminds us, that teaches us again and again of this terrifying truth. Be careful what you wish for. Because God just might let you have it. You know what we think is scary about God sometimes? This is what kept many of us from becoming Christians or maturing in our faith or following Christ because we were scared if I follow God, He won't give me what I actually want. Right? That's not the scary part. The scary part is that He will. Like if if we pursue God with our whole hearts, He will give us what we want. He already has. But if what we really want is this other stuff out there, we learn this over and over and over. If we pursue that stuff, God will often let us have it. And it is just as big of a train wreck as Israel wanting a king to be like, so they can be like all the other nations. This is not an isolated incident. It's, it's a major theme of the human condition. Adam and Eve wanted that piece of fruit. So God let them have it. Cain wanted to kill his brother. God let him do it. Lot wanted what was in Sodom and Gomorrah. David wanted Bathsheba. Judas wanted to get rid of Jesus. Uh, Peter wanted those people in that courtyard to believe. He had never been around Jesus before, right? And in all those cases, God says what he so often does. Oh, you think that will make you happier and more content and your life better than actually doing what I say is best. Have at it. This theme is so prevalent, it's why Paul, when he sat down to write All right, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it look like to be a Christian? Why do we need to be a Christian? He started here. In Romans 1, a little snippet beginning in verse 28, Paul writes this. Speaking about ancient people, but it's still the human condition, Paul said, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do What God said should not be done. They're filled with every kind of unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, malice. They're rife with envy, murder, strife, deceit, hostility. They're gossips, they're slanderers, they're haters of God. They're insolent, angry, arrogant, boastful, contrivers of all sorts of evil. They're disobedient to their parents. They're senseless, they're covenant breakers, they're heartless, they're ruthless. Although they know what God says is right and wrong, those who practice, and that those who do what God says is wrong deserve to die. They know all that. They not only do that stuff, but they make excuses for other people who do that stuff too. Now, do you see what Paul says mankind's problem is, though? Do you see the problem? According to Paul, the problem is not that we're unrighteous and wicked and covetous, that we're filled with malice and murder and strife and deceit and hostility and we gossip. That's not the problem. Do you see the problem? 
The problem is we don't acknowledge God. What's that mean? We don't acknowledge. We don't recognize. We don't understand, believe, affirm, and walk like it's true that God, because He's God, knows what's best and says what is right, and my best life is spent according to what He says is best for me. As soon as I make this leap where I no longer acknowledge that and say, nope, in this instance, pretty sure this other thing is better for me. As soon as we get there, the rest of this stuff starts to come out of me. He says, see, they, they refuse to acknowledge God. They chase something else. God says, go get it, big boy. Have at it. And then they get filled with all the symptoms of the original problem. This is why it's, it is folly to say, to believe. I know God says this is best, but I'm going to do that and just keep myself from being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, malice, envy. I'm not going to kill anybody. I'm really not going to try to do strife and deceit and hostility. I'm not going to gossip about it. I'm not going to slander anybody. I'm not certainly not going to hate God. I'm not going to be insolent. I'm not going to be arrogant. I'm not going to be boastful. I'm not going to contrive any other kinds of evil. I'm going to go down this path, but I can do it correctly. I won't do any of that stuff. You know what Paul would say? Yes, you will. So will I. Because they're not the problem. They're the symptoms of the problem. And they're inevitable. It's why it's so important for me to constantly preach to my own heart that what God wants for me will ultimately be what is best for me. What God wants for me will ultimately be what's best for me. Even if I can't understand how that might work out, how that could possibly be, what God says is best is actually going to be best. Because once I've bought the lie, something else is actually better in this situation. The symptoms will come out of me. This is why our, our question is not like, how do I be good going in a direction God doesn't want me going or anything like that? How do I control myself? Our question second one posed by this passage is this. Who is going to be my king? Who is going to be king over my life? Who is going to be Lord? Who is going to set the agenda? Who is going to determine which path I walk? Not just who's going to help me try to be good while I go where I actually want to go. Who determines even where I head to begin with?
this is a really important question. And it was a, it's the question in this passage, why make a big deal out of saying uh, Israel was always going to have a king, it was okay that they wanted a king. Part of Israel's problem was they didn't have a king. This, this takes place, the time period, this is the very end of the time of the judges. What was the problem of the book of Judges? You remember? In those days, there was no king in Israel. The result? Well, everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. See, if we have the right king who sets the right agenda, who gives the right uh, rules, who gives the right actions, then I no longer do what's right in my eyes and try to convince myself it's actually okay and everyone else and I really couldn't help it. I do what's right in my king's eyes. This was the problem. Israel was always going to have a king. Maybe they got ahead of themselves a bit. But the law told them what kind of king the good king would be. And he's not a king like every other nation's king. He's a king like this. Now there's someone else besides Samuel who becomes a pretty good description of this list. Who himself is also the king of Israel. For a minute, David was the king after God's own heart. For a minute. But does this remind you of Jesus? He's a king. Did he accumulate many horses for himself? He rode a donkey one time, but I mean, that's about it, right? Did he, did he marry many wives? No. Did he accumulate much silver and gold? No. Did he ever make a copy of the law? Believe it, he did it with his finger on tablets of stone on Mount Moriah. We're often told that the, the high point of Israel's monarchy, the time where they had kings, was, was who? Solomon, right? Solomon was the, at the peak of the monarchy. Go back through that list and give Solomon a score on how he did, according to what God said a good king would look like. You know how Solomon does? Terrible. He's at the pinnacle of being a king like the rest of the world's kings. Great army, piles of money, many, many wives. This is what Jesus was talking about. When one time in his life, he was talking to some uh, experts in the law who were looking for a king, but they were all, you know why they rejected Jesus? Because they just want a king like the rest of the world. Jesus isn't a king like the rest of the world. You know what he told him in the day I was, that I'm referring to? He said, one greater than Solomon is here. But greater how? Did Jesus have more horses than Solomon? Did he have more wives than Solomon? Did he have more uh, political alliances than Solomon? No, he was God's kind of king. Unlike Solomon. That's, that's the question this passage asks. Who will be my king? And, and please understand, you need the good king. Israel always needed the good king. You need the good king. Our country needs the good king. We convince ourselves he's on the ballot every four years. And we're always wrong. 
Because go back to that list. Nobody's running like that. I wouldn't vote for him. If somebody said, you know what? We're going to get rid of our entire military and just trust in God. I'd be like, no, thank you. Because we're not Israel. But we still need the good king. And someone or something is going to be yours and going to be mine. So be careful what you wish for. God just might let you get it. And maybe our desire should be for the right king. Because he'll let us have that too. Who will be your king? Who will set your agenda? Who will drive your life? This passage is, but it's scary. It's scary to be vulnerable enough to just trust God. Like, I'm just going to do what is right. And holy smokes, I could get, I feel like I could get burnt to the ground on this. Ultimately, will always be where he is. Because he's the king who gives. We're going to transition toward communion. He's the king who gives. He may not be a great military leader the first time. (laughs) He may not uh, be a a king like all of the nations of the other world would vote for or would, would want. But he's not a taker. He's a giver. And we can, we can serve Jesus, but we can't outserve Jesus. He's the king who would, would give his own life to let others be a part of his kingdom. He serves and serves and serves. So be careful what you wish for. God just might let you have it. And second, Who will be your king? You can't find one better than Jesus. It's not there. Let's pray and then we'll uh, enjoy some time communing with him. Our Father and our God, um, we may not be Israel, but we sure do act like them sometimes. We have such a hard time sometimes being willing to be different from the rest of the world in a good way. We're so, uh, we're so quick to want to put our trust in what we can see. And we're so slow to trust you when we step out in faith in some way, whether that be sharing the gospel or being a giver or just doing the right things on a consistent basis and trusting you with the results. We're so quick to be our own kings. Thank you, God, that you, in your word, you preserve these examples of that turning out like a train wreck so that we can remind ourselves picking the wrong king has devastating effects. It never works. Help us to acknowledge you as our king. That's the only thing that keeps us from being like that terrible list from Romans that Paul said. All all the bad stuff we know, Lord, ultimately comes because we don't acknowledge the right power as King and Lord over our lives. And God, as we transition uh, to the table, I just pray you'd bless our time as we commune with you in Jesus' name. God, as the guys come forward to collect the bread, I pray, pray that you would bless our time with the symbol of your body 
while it comes around in Jesus' name. Amen.